I mean, when you when you buy a stock, you actually need you basically need like the whole investment community to be making an error because like at, at that moment, like say you're buying a stock that's worth the uh, you know it's it's priced at twenty dollars and you think it's worth forty, right? But you got to be the highest possible bid in you know in the country for that stock at a given time to actually buy a share of it, right? So implicitly, you need everyone else in the market to be making a mistake because it's uh, you know it's an un, you know it's priced you know, at a very undervalued level. And for all those people to be making a, making a mistake, it, it needs to be something systematic, right? It needs to be like a, a, a something that affects more than one brain, like in a, in a systematic way. Otherwise, it would probably not you know create so many errors about a particular about one stock. You're listening to Risk of Ruin. I'm John Reeder. This is episode 29, Waiting on Value. One of the interesting things about trying to find guests for this podcast is that sometimes I will reach out to a potential guest and get a little bit of reluctance over tying what they're doing to gambling. Some people who make a living in the markets just don't think it's appropriate to make that comparison. And in some sense, they're right. If you think about casino games as being fun or recreational, the markets are not there for recreation. And also, if you only think of gambling as a negative EV endeavor, then someone who makes a living in the markets would not see what they do as being the same thing. Some people haven't stopped to think about the plus EV version of gambling. But then there are other times where I've reached out to a guest and they got it right away. For instance, John Hempton loves the Ed Thorpe book, A Man for All Markets, where Thorpe talks about beating gambling games and the market. And so if you listen to Hempton's episode, you can hear that he is tailoring his comments so that gamblers can understand the risks that short sellers encounter. He even talks about Kelly betting in the context of short selling. Then there's maybe a third type of guest who doesn't need to tailor their comments for a gambling context because their mental processes are already gambling native. Blair Hull was a card counter turned options trader, and he says that he approached the options market the same way that he approached blackjack. This episode is also about that kind of thing because Evan Tyndall and Byream Capital are value investors, but Evan got his start in risk as a poker player. So I was interested in finance and economics uh, as an undergrad I did kind of a, I did this major at MIT where you can focus on uh, focus primarily on an engineering uh, major but also do some other thing that interests you and so I did uh, mechanical engineering with like a side focus on finance and economics so I I, I enjoyed economics and, uh, and and finance I was kind of interested in the topic in general and I had interviewed for some for some trading jobs along the way. Although, yeah, I just I I, just, I decided I was making too much money and 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 having too much fun playing poker. Um, it's kind of you know it's kind of hard to convince a uh, an eighteen year old that uh, they should go work a a real job when they can make six figures playing poker and just like traveling around wherever they want. Um, <laughs> so uh, so yeah, went 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 the poker route. But I was always interested in finance and. Then a few years into my, uh, actually right a lot around the time I was graduating is when the 
uh, I forget the acronym, the UIAGA or whatever the, the the law came that to be passed, which was the one that made it illegal for banks to transfer funds uh, onto online poker sites. So like to serve US citizens by, you know, transferring funds onto online poker sites. And it made it, it just made it, it made the games worse online. I mean, of course I could have played in person. I could have, I mean, I was still making money online, but the games, the games got significantly worse. Um, and so that, that kind of, that dovetailed with uh, a period during which I was already starting to invest my own money on the side. So as a as a gambler, I mean, once or it's really in any business, you know, once you start to have some success, you you, you no longer um, if you have your own business, if you start if you start having a decent amount of success, you're 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 no longer oftentimes able to reinvest that money directly in like whatever you're doing. I mean, this is very obviously this is very common for anyone with like a, a nine to five job where they don't own the the business. Like any money that you that you save has to be invested in something else, right? Because you're not an owner of the business. Um, but in, but in poker, it's uh, you know it's 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 very obvious if you make uh, you know X hundred thousand dollars or whatever, you're not gonna sit with it. You're not you're not putting it at risk at like a one thousand dollar buy in game, right? So you so you need to find something else to do with the money. And uh, so I started learning about investing. I already knew a little bit from uh, you know various courses in college or whatnot. And uh, my buddy from college. My buddy from school, uh, who's now my business partner, Ryan Valentine, he put me on to uh, the whole value investing world. And honestly, it, it kind of um, it kind of immediately spoke to me because it, it was sort of analogous to something I had experienced in poker. I hadn't really thought about the parallels between value investing and poker until I talked to Evan, but I can definitely see it now. In poker, you sit around and wait for a hand that you can play. And Warren Buffett has described value investing as being like a baseball at-bat, except you don't ever have to swing. You can take as many pitches as you want, and you only swing at what you really want to. Both things reward patience. They're games of self-control, where you have to fight off the instinct to just do something. In, in, in poker, uh, there's obviously, the, the reason why you can make money playing poker is that people play very irrationally. And, you know, you can go to the casino and there's all sorts of ludicrous things that people believe about you know they think the dealer's going to bring them luck they uh you know they have favorite hands that they play no matter what just because it looks pretty or whatever i mean you can see this obviously throughout the entire casino people are doing irrational things mostly by just showing up right from a financial perspective um but then there is a proper way to play the game right so uh there's this publishing company called two plus two that makes poker uh, books. They might they might make other gambling books as well, um, but primarily poker books. And it's just they they promote just like a rational. Like there's a book called The Theory of Poker, which is a classic. That I don't know if you've heard of that one, but um, by by David Sklansky, um, which just goes into you know like the the math the math behind the game and how you should play um, the sort of like a proper rational way of of playing. And so I, I went down that rabbit hole for poker back in like 2003 or, or something. And it, it, it made a lot of sense to me because it was, you know, where you, you're playing against all these people that are just kind of doing random, irrational things. Um, and the way to beat that is obviously by, uh, you know, by, by, by using a, a strategy that, that makes sense and that has like math behind it. Uh, and so, you know, the idea of a company is worth the value of its cash flows and therefore like you should spend all your time trying to work out uh, you know, what those cash flows are going to be and what they're going to be worth to you. Um, and not, you know, what a chart, 
you know, whether there's a cup and a handle or wh- whatever other mumbo jumbo, the the ninety percent, the other ninety percent of investing books are uh, promoting. Um, so that that idea that there was kind of a rational framework for looking at investing as well really really spoke to me, and so I just kind of you know went down the rabbit hole of of uh, value investing books, intelligent investor, and um, security analysis and, uh, you know, whatever the, the other ones that are, you know, that are decent. We've heard this kind of thing on the podcast before. Some guests have opted to stay in gambling and some have made the move to the financial markets. It's sort of interesting to the extent that it shows the importance of priorities. The markets are almost surely the way to make more money. You have to be a very good gambler to make a million dollars a year, but on wall street, lots of people make a million dollars. Still, some people do stay in gambling because it fits their personality. They can't really stomach the idea of having a boss. But Evan made the move because he found the market to be much more interesting. And so I, I started to get more interested in investing. And, uh, you know, when, when the time, when, when the games online started, I mean, not completely drying up, but, you know, getting, getting um, you know, drying up a little bit, I started to think about, like, what was going to be next for me. And, you know, investing is like, you know, it, it, it is obviously in many ways, it's much more appealing as a as a day job than than poker uh, if, if for no other reason than it has more variety right so i mean in, in in poker every table and the people playing the game are different but at the end of the day there's 52 cards and there's uh, a very large but fixed number of possible you know ways those cards can be distributed and the it, that just makes it less interesting than something like investing where there's you know an infinite number of um, you know, there's uh, thousands and thousands of companies and an infinite number of, uh, you know, possible situations in the future and, uh, inf- you know, an infinite number of different business models to think about. And, uh, you know, you're, you're, uh, you're learning about new things all the time. And it's, you know, super relevant to, um, you know, history and politics and, you know, just the way the world, the world works in general. So uh, that made it more appealing to me in the long, in the long run than poker. You know, I always kind of knew that I, I wouldn't play poker forever. And so then when my, my, that same buddy from, from college was, he was a couple years younger than me. So I'd been playing poker for two, two years as like my sole thing, but like really like four or five years professionally in terms of, uh, you know, when I started making money. And so when he, he reached out to me, uh, because he was going to, he was thinking of going to work for his dad as dad's hedge fund. And so he reached out, um, basically he convinced his dad that he had to interview some, some people because he didn't want to work. So he didn't want to be like solo it was basically a family office so he didn't want to be solo with his dad from you know uh, 12 hours a day or 10 hours a day or whatever they were going to work you know just uh him and his dad like being like just so like in an office together like all day every day he just thought that was too much so they brought me in as a buffer uh that was in 2009 and so i did yeah so and then i just you know fell in love with investing and i guess uh you know that that kind of set me set me on my way in the industry Evan spent a few years as an analyst, and then he and Ryan opened Byroom Capital. They started with a small amount of money, and they're still growing, but they're doing well. Their returns look good compared to the market. They try to pick stocks where there is some structural reason that the company is undervalued, some reason that could be common to all investors. So they look for human biases. A good example of the kind of thing they're looking for is Facebook. In 2018, it had been beaten up largely due to bad PR surrounding the 2016 election. You might remember something called Cambridge Analytica, and it had become somewhat fashionable for people to claim to delete Facebook. Also, 
There were some concerns that the site could be in for more regulation, but Evan says that the core business wasn't really affected, and even the bad PR didn't really extend beyond tough talk. You know, empty promises from very online people. Um, but yeah, it was down 40% or something. And I mean, obviously the the newsworthy thing was Facebook is in a lot of trouble. People are writing delete Facebook on Twitter. Journalists are all over them. Congress is all over them. And so things are going to go badly for them, right? But if you actually look under the hood, then first of all, A, I mean, people don't really, like most people, like I think sometimes journalists and investors get a little bit tricked into like how often consumers like read the news and, you know, and I really like completely rearrange their life to like fit whatever the news story of the day is. Like not that many people are actually going to delete Facebook because um, of some like campaign uh, having to do with the election privacy data or something like so that's just in the U.S. Overseas, I mean, people are, I mean, is someone in, uh, you know, Indonesia or Japan, are they deleting Facebook because of, Cam- have they heard of Cambridge Analytica? Do they care about the 2016, you know, the 2016 uh, U.S. election? Probably, but not so much that they're following the whole Cambridge Analytica thing. Um, and uh, third, like most people in the U, even in the U.S. at that time, most people did not even know that Facebook owned Instagram. So how are they going to like, they're definitely not deleting Instagram. Even people that did know that Facebook owned Instagram were like, well, I'm deleting Facebook. But uh, I mean, I had a friend or two that was like, well, I'm deleting Facebook, but obviously I can't delete Instagram. I mean, that's where all my friends are. Like I have to, you know, I mean, of course they were, those were the, probably the ones that weren't using Facebook anyway. So, I mean, basically if you looked under the hood, uh, it was, you know, one of the greatest businesses of all time trading at 20 times earnings with the giant, um, you know, growth push uh, ahead of it for the next few years, which, um, you know, which obviously that that story changed a little bit this year, but uh, it, it was sort of like the perfect example of availability bias and how people like kind of latch onto the newsworthy thing without kind of digging under the surface. Facebook is a very well-known company, but lots of the companies that Byram invests in are not well-known. Have you ever heard of Kojiko? They're a Canadian cable operator, in case you care. Or what about HCA Healthcare? Not exactly a household name. So how does Evan end up pulling the trigger on these companies? I try to keep my my funnel for ideas of of stocks to like keep you know stay aware of pretty pretty wide. It could be from some type of screen that I do. I, I'll run screens on on Bloomberg and other places to uh, you know generate things to look at. You know, obviously I'll, I'll, I have a, a list of companies that I'm kind of that I'm following or, or potential ideas. I'll, I'll and I'll keep track of those companies and oftentimes their competitors as well. Sometimes that generates ideas. I mean, one of the good things about investing these days it's, it's good and bad is any pretty much any good idea like like probably 80% or 90% of the stocks that are going to outperform in that like within the Russell um or within the Wilshire or whatever you know sort of index you want to look at probably 80 to 90% of the ones that are going to outperform have some type of write up somewhere where someone has been like this is an amazing stock here's why it's going to do great like blah 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 like the information is kind of is kind of out there um you just have to you just have to sift through it so um yeah, I definitely i i have a pretty i have a pretty wide funnel, and then um, I, I start to whittle that down based on uh, based on a definitely valuation. I mean, I'm 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 really mostly looking at things that are trading at you know less than. I, see, my my thing is I don't need it to be I don't need to to be like insanely cheap. Like I don't need it to be like six or seven times earnings. Uh, my sweet spot is probably you know eight to fifteen times earnings, like a little bit cheaper than the market. 
and where I can kind of put my finger on the mistake that other thing, other investors are making as, as to why it's cheap. So like, you know, there's like a, a common story about the stock uh, that, you know, I keep reading about. And that's like my favorite situation is where I have something to, to shoot at, right? Like I, I there, there's, a, there's a story about, about the business or the industry um, and, and it's trading cheaper than the market. And I, I feel like I have, uh, you know, a, 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 a variant perception as Michael Steinhardt um, popularized that term as to why that common perception is 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 incorrect and beyond that I, I if i can if that error seems to be kind of a systematic one that people that people are making just in that um it, it falls into one of like the the well-known cognitive biases that uh you know that has been that have been described in the you know behavioral ec- economics literature then then i start to really feel like i i can you know, understand the mistake that other people are are, are making, uh, and you know, then I'm much more likely to 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 make an investment in, in, in that type of situation where I really can really get comfortable as to you know why people are making a mistake, the, making a mistake, and, and and what that mistake is. The thing that keeps every would be stock picker up at night is the efficient markets hypothesis. It's kind of a funny thing because most investors agree that markets are generally efficient, and most investors also sort of ignore that. When it comes to picking their own stocks, it's like the market is efficient for everyone else. Evan has a really interesting analogy to illustrate the mechanism that makes markets efficient. The game Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, there's different uh, lifelines that you can that you can choose to help you out if, you, if you're kind of struggling. And there was a lifeline called Pull the Audience. And in this lifeline, you would, uh, or do, I guess, if it's still going on, you Get, let the audience try to answer the questions. It's usually like a, like a four or five, uh, I think it's usually four possible answers that the, that the question could be. And you get to see wh- how the audience voted for the question. And if you remember the game, the, the, po- the ask the audience question was like, it was way, it's way better than like phoning your friend. Like you save the ask the audience one for the very end, usually. And and and, and this is, I mean, of course, people are trying to find really smart friends, right? But the, the audience of random people is better, in my opinion. And the reason why is because the errors that people make tend to be random, right? So if you can imagine, you know, if you have four choices, there's like a gravitational pull for like the 10 or 20% or 30% of the audience that might actually know the answer is, you know, whatever choice C or something. So for that 30%, um, you know, they're going to tend to answer C, but the rest of the people are just probably going to spray their answers around randomly. um, And their errors will kind of uh, neutralize each other, and you'll just end up with more people picking C than the other than the other choices. So in that way, you kind of turn a random set of audience members into like a genius, basically, uh, for some of those questions. But if you, if you think about, and that's kind of like the efficient markets, how they work with with most stocks. So you can see that if consensus opinion is a fairly powerful thing, powerful enough to turn a group of randos into a collective very smart person, and the job of a fund manager is to compete against this collective very smart person, then you need some structural problem with the aggregated decision-making. You need something baked into the group's thinking that ultimately betrays their interest. That's where behavioral psychology and behavioral finance comes in. We know that as humans, we have weaknesses. We engage in herd mentality, so it can be very difficult to take an opinion outside the group. We have other weaknesses, like loss aversion. Losses feel worse to us than wins feel good. We engage in anchoring or overweighting the first evidence we come into contact with. There are a bunch of these known cognitive biases, and one way to think about them is that they're sort of like the factory settings for our brains. That's how we operate by default. 
And so making good decisions actually requires working against these factory settings. The way I think about cognitive biases is it's really a, it's a, it's a filter. It's a non-quantitative filter that just tries to get me fishing in a, in, in a really good pond. I mean, we'll, I'll definitely consider an idea, even if I don't really have, um, uh, I'll, I'll consider idea, an idea if I don't really have a, a theory of the bias behind it, but um, they're definitely the minority in the, in, the, in the portfolio. One of the stocks that has done well for Evan is the somewhat notorious RCI Holdings, sometimes called Ricks. It's the strip club stock. We also had a, a, a really good uh, investment in a company called, uh, called RCI Hospitality. They own strip clubs and restaurants. And, uh, you know, I mean, it, obviously in that, in, in, in that situation, you have for a long time, you, it traded at a pretty, it traded at a really big discount to, you know, similar types of businesses, uh, depending on your definition of similar, you know, because it's, it's, uh, people view it as a little bit unseemly, uh, you know, people don't want to get involved in that type of thing. Uh, mutual funds certainly aren't really owning it. Uh, and so it, it traded at a cheap multiple, but, um, you know, I, we took the view in terms of the the business itself. Like, as long as what they're doing is legal, everyone's consenting adults. Like, you know, we don't we don't really have a problem with it. But uh, the interesting thing was like the 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 the, the sort of sin stock, uh, the sinful nature potentially of their of of their business was kind of directly related to their competitive advantages. Like, you know, not only do people not want to own the stock, but also there's not that many competitors to, uh, you know, to, to, to buy out the mom and pop shops that they've acquired over the years. So they're able to get decent prices on, uh, on, on, on acquisitions. And also, uh, you know, p- not only do people not want to own the stock, but they don't really want more, uh, you know, of, of these, uh, they don't really want more strip clubs in like whatever city they're in. So like, um, you know, New York City, you're not really going to open a new strip club, but, um, but uh, RCI's clubs are going to be there forever, probably. And so, you know, they're, they're sort of grandfathered in due to, due to zoning laws and whatnot. And so, you know, in 2016, it traded for, for a long time, it traded for a single digit PE multiple. Um, but when you actually looked at the business, I mean, you know, their EBITDA margins, even then were like, they've always been like 20 to 25%, which is essentially double what you would get at most, uh, most restaurant businesses, um, you know, if, if that's what you want to compare them to. And, and yet it traded for a huge discount. So, um, so that was another one. I think we, we were originally buying in like at like ten to fifteen dollars, and then uh, you know we sold at around thirty, and then in COVID, then we came back to it in COVID and bought it like at a single digit um, number, and now it's at you know eighty. There's also this interesting question in terms of information, i.e., how much information is the right amount? Where's the line between knowing more about the company than the rest of the market and getting too much information, information that could make you overconfident or Maybe information that could lead to paralysis by analysis. What's the perfect amount of information to just pull the trigger and make good decisions? You know, I've been researching a company that owns a bunch of like, uh, owns a bunch of internet sites. And so I'm like looking at trends in like the like 25 different like random websites that they own uh, and trying to, to glean like whether it's a stable business or not. And you know, reading reviews of, uh, on those websites and, you know, using the, I mean, sometimes, sometimes there's products you can use, obviously just, I just got, um, I just got our, uh, me and my business partner both just bought quest pros because, um, Facebook is a big position for us. Um, you know, another, 
kind of tech uh, darling that's gotten smoked in the last few quarters. Um, so it's just it's really just a variety of things. It's like just trying to just trying to find any piece of information that you can um, and and you know try to understand how it how it help you know how it affects uh, affects the thesis. I mean, it, I, I do think it's important not to get like too bogged down in you know needing tons of information to uh, to make your decision. Like I I, I often I have joked that. Um, you know, I have a lot of friends that use uh, that use Tegas or Stream um, for uh, expert calls, and I've often joked that, like, I, for the most part, I prefer to invest in things that are like so um, kind of like off the beaten track or like so boring that like you wouldn't even have a like that you wouldn't even have a Tegas call for it. <laughs> if that makes sense. Um, obviously, that's not true with Facebook and Netflix, but that is largely true for most of the other companies we invest in. Um, like there's definitely a, uh, there can be a bias sometimes into like, you know, the companies with the most, inf- the most expert calls and the most information out there are the stuff that everyone's interested in. And those can, you know, have like a, a valuation premium associated with that for sure. Evan told me that for something he's generally familiar with, like Twitter, for instance, where he knew a lot about the company and a lot about the legal case, he can make a decision fairly quickly. It took him about a week to pull the trigger on the Twitter trade. But for other stocks, there's no magic amount of time he'll need to get comfortable. Even if I even if I know the company well, if like the main question, if like the main question of the of, of the situation is something that um, I'm not I'm just not comfortable with yet, I might look at it for a year or two years and just kind of watch it until I until it, until something happens where I kind of understand why like like what i was missing or you know the what what other people are missing or you know there the, the, there is some clarity for me on you know why the thing is actually actually is undervalued or not um and so i i you know for example like i've been looking at car i've been looking at auto dealers for a while and you know they seem really cheap and there's potentially some reasons why people are are, are misunderstanding what's going on but i just don't it's just hard for me to wrap my mind around, um, you know, what their what their long term margins are going to be, and so I just I haven't pulled the trigger on it yet. And it's, uh, you know, I might maybe I'll be maybe I'll be looking at them for years, and then I'll finally understand it. Um, and so it's just for me, it's like it just it, it it just completely variable based on like my my own subjective comfort level based on like the amount of research I've done. And and for some questions, it might take years. Um, you know, not that I'm like researching those stocks every single day. But it might just it might take years for it to click for me, you know, like where I find that one piece of that, like one or two pieces of information that um, that, that that puts it over the top. I mean, so so we have a long position in Netflix. And for that one, you know, I, I've been researching. I originally researched it as a potential short like a zillion years ago. We never ended up shorting it, luckily, at, at my old firm. And then I started researching it as a long uh, never pulled the trigger on that either because I just wasn't, I just wasn't sure, um, about a million things. And then, but then I come back to it like, you know, five or six years later, and there's this whole, there's this whole other host of issues that are happening. Uh, but at the end of it, there, uh, is a business that actually has pretty good margins if you can get comfortable with the accounting. And so for me, the biggest thing there was, uh, spending a bunch of time, um, getting really comfortable with their amortization accounting. And, uh, and, but one, and once I did that, I was pretty close to being able to, to invest in the stock. Uh, and then, and yeah, and then we ended up investing and, and of course lost, we, I mean, we bought it like in the three hundreds, so we definitely lost some money to start with, but, um, but yeah, now I think it's, 
now we're now I think we're up a little bit on our average cost. Evan isn't just looking for overlooked companies. He's also looking for overlooked components in very well-known companies. We owned 21st Century Fox back a few years ago. I don't know if you remember that um, that story, but I mean, basically they owned some super valuable, you know, it's um, Rupert Murdoch's company. Uh, you know, they, they owned the uh, 20th Century Fox, you know, production studio, and they, they owned the, um, uh, you know, the cable companies, et cetera. And, you know, basically it traded at about a 14 times PE, uh, which was a discount to the S&P at the time. Um, and this was uh, back in, gosh, I don't know, 2017 or 2018, I think. And basically, uh, if you actually looked at their underlying assets, you would see that they own like a, a few things that were growing super fast, but weren't really um, valued in the overall uh, in the overall company because they weren't making the, the profits that they were making weren't really material to the, to the to the larger company. So it was just kind of traded like a boring cable company. Um, but when you like, for example, the Star India asset, which is the the largest satellite provider in in India, was basically it looked like it was going to be worth, um, you know, basically the guidance was for a billion dollars in EBITDA, like a, a couple of years out, and you know, and we thought it was, and it was growing quickly. Uh, it was like dominant player in that in that industry in that country, and so we thought that piece alone was probably worth you know eight to twelve billion dollars, and. Basically, we thought it was worth about $50 per share. And like 22 of those dollars were sort of in these hidden assets. And, you know, not to mention the fact that like based on the even on the assets that were that were there, um, you know, it wasn't an expensive company. Uh, and of course, people people argued that, you know, Rupert Murdoch would not ne- he would never sell. And it was like going to be, you know, you could do some of the parts all you want, but it's never going to be realized, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, our, our argument was, um, you know, even if it's even if they don't sell, like, Asset, the assets like Star India are going to start contributing, um, you know, to the bottom line and, and and really grow the business over time. And and so they and but of course they, they ended up selling to Disney at a, at a giant premium, and it worked out. It worked out really well for us. So I saw someone say something funny once about the stock Bed Bath and Beyond. They said that the price of the stock only reflected the value of the bed and the bath, and you were getting the Beyond for free. It's funny because first of all, it's Bed Bath and Beyond. But also that way of turning the valuation of a company into sort of a rhetorical trick is kind of common, especially when talking about the sum of a company's parts. A lot, a lot of people, especially like on finance Twitter, they kind of poo-poo uh, some of the parts analysis. Uh, but what I usually find is that there's a big difference between bad sum of the parts and good sum of the parts analysis. So and uh, there's many examples of companies, uh, of investors literally just like you know, valuing a bunch of comp- t- taking the EBITDA of a bunch of segments, slapping on double-digit EBITDA multiples, and then you know saying it's a sum of the parts. It's, it's cheap based on some of the parts without really analyzing. Like, okay, do those do that? Does that EBITDA convert to free cash flow? Are those EBITDA estimates reasonable? Like, why is this? Why actually is it worth twelve times EBITDA? Um, but that's a big. That's that's a huge difference from saying like, okay. You know, this is a company with some hidden assets, and those hidden assets are going to grow free cash flow. And even if nothing is done, those ca- those cash flows are going to start at, start coming down to the bottom line, and the company is actually going to grow more than investors might expect if they're looking at kind of like the boring the boring core business. One of the interesting things about the cognitive biases is how primitive they reveal our species to be. Like we all want to think of ourselves as these advanced beings capable of sophisticated thoughts and 
also in charge of our emotions. And the truth is we are barely holding it together basket cases. Just take recency bias, for example. If there's been a recent earthquake, which are very uncommon things, our brains take that recent occurrence and turn earthquakes into a thing that will happen all the time. We're like, yep, there's probably another one coming. And you can see that kind of thing play out in markets. We aggressively buy market tops and sell market bottoms. It's really embarrassing. But we have all of this programmed in bad behavior or bad when it comes to markets anyway. Um, but another bias is uh, is when people sell winners too early, right? And that's uh, the flip side of the bias that makes people hold on to losers. And that bias is called disposition, the disposition effect. And it just means that it basically means that people want to make trades that uh, that make them feel like winners, right? And so when you have a, a, a losing trade that could turn around, um, you let you wait because if it turns around and you sell it at a profit, you'll be, you're, it's a winning trade. And when you have something that's working, you you want to sell it quickly because you can sell it right now and it's and it's a winning trade, right? But uh, in investing, it doesn't really matter how many winning trades or losing trades you you have what actually matters is the the sheer amount of money that you make relative to your invested capital. So that desire to have winning trades actually hurts people in the long term because they sell things too early primarily. And so we're um we're very cognizant of of how that affects our own uh you know desire to sell things and whatnot. And so we try to hold on to things for as long as possible. If something's been working, I try to make sure I'm really giving them full credit in my modeling, like I really try hard to, um, you know, give them the benefit of the doubt in, in terms of like improvements that are happening and like, um, you know, flowing through, uh, you know, for example, like growth in same store sales to profitability or continuing that over time or, you know, giving them credit for store growth or whatever, like the, you know, whatever the little modeling deci- decisions you have to make to try to hold on to the stock if it's been working. Because I know that the, that the buy it, that the, you know, my brain is going to want me to be overly conservative and just, and just sell the thing. Um, and, and of course, that also has tax implications, right? Like you'd rather delay the taxes as long as you can if it's possible. So um, what we do is we, we kind of create, we create IRRs, like estimated IRRs for all of our long positions and, and some of the stocks that we're looking at as well. And we kind of compare them. And, you know, as long as something still has a, a, a pretty good IRR relative to other things we're looking at, we will keep it. But obviously, if it starts to have, you know, if I'm trying to give the company full credit for its improvements and like the, you know, earnings growth or whatever good has been happening that causes the stock to go up, if even after I'm giving them full credit for all that stuff, it still only has like, uh, you know, a, a low single digit IRR, or God forbid, a negative IRR, then then we will sell it. You know, I try to do the reverse on the, you know, on the losses side. I try to make sure I'm not, you know, I'm not just uh, just holding on to a stock that's that's doing poorly when I should sell it. So if if, th- if negative things have been hap- have been happening to the stock, I try to make sure that I'm really, you know, fully accounting for those changes that have that have occurred. Mistakes in life tend not to be that costly unless you double down on them. Getting away from bad decisions is a pretty valuable thing, but if you spend a bunch of time researching a position and then it goes against you, it's not super easy to just throw in the towel and admit you're wrong. I mean, just think about a situation where you buy a stock because you think it's 50% undervalued, then it cuts in half from there. It's even more undervalued than when you started. How can you know whether you're still right, just in a very painful way, or whether it's time to take the loss? 
We own a company called Tencent Music, which is a Chinese uh, operator of uh, a online like social karaoke uh, app called WeSing, uh, as well as uh, it's the dominant player in subscription music in in China with like you know seventy plus percent market share. Uh, and, and they, we thought it was a really good bet. We thought that the the valuation of the kind of the karaoke uh, streaming business um, was more than not more than, but you know, basically gave us the the, the you know got us to the valuation in, in the market. You know, fully supported the valuation of the stock, and then the online music business, which they have a basically a monopoly in, but isn't profitable yet, was kind of like a free a free option that was gonna that was gonna become profitable over time. And we saw, uh, you know, in the year that we owned it, we saw a double whammy of more competition from TikTok and other streaming companies in China, Douyin in China and other other companies, along with which caused them to lose like 27% of their um, of their subscribers, uh, or their sorry, their users to the those those uh, those streaming apps, along with increased competition from basically their like one um their one competitor in the online music streaming space in china which is uh, netty's cloud music including on price uh so we thought they could raise they could raise prices over time and, and become more profitable in, in in the music streaming business but um th- their competitors do not appear to be letting them do that and so yeah it was a double whammy the stock even though the stock went from like six and a half or something to four we just pulled the plug because the number the numbers just uh, the numbers just didn't didn't work anymore. The original value investing books by Benjamin Graham were written in 1934 and 1949. Warren Buffett's annual letters going back 50 years are easily accessible on the web. Seth Klarman's book The Margin of Safety came out in 1991. The point is that these are not new ideas and access to the information is also not that limited. The framework espoused by Graham and Buffett is so, uh, you know, commonplace now that, you know, having heard of value investing and like knowing that a stock is the present value of its cash flows and trying to buy it cheap, trying to buy it cheaper than that. That's just these days, that's just kind of table stakes. Like that's just kind of everyone. I mean, most the vast majority of dollars in the market, maybe not people in the market, because obviously there's a lot of retail people doing nonsense, like buying meme stocks and whatnot. Um, but like the average, the average mutual fund dollar um, or the average hedge fund dollar certainly under understands the basics, and so you know that that's really who you're competing with, and like half of them are going to underperform, and they're you know that, that both the half that the, the half that outperform and the half that underperform are both going to be aware of uh, you know like the whole like Mister Market analogy and blah blah blah. So unfortunately, unlike unlike poker, and just sort of knowing what you're doing and investing is not is not good enough to beat the market. <laughs> It's not good enough to win. There's an interesting question as to how much natural talent for this kind of thing we're born with and how much can be learned. Obviously, if you listen to Evan, you can hear that underlying his process is effort. Lots of effort. He digs for stuff that might have been overlooked, and he keeps working on the puzzle until he thinks he has it. So is that drive to solve the puzzle something you're born with, or could it be learned? It's probably part learned, probably part innate, like kind of ability to take a step back and like just at least try to know about the biases, like take a step back, try to like rationally think about like, okay, well, what other information could I look for here to kind of like confirm what's going on? Like there's a little bit of skepticism you have to have with everything, I think. Um, And yeah, I just think, um, I think a lot of people could overcome these biases if they just were always willing to, I think like just one of the most important things is just like having like a natural curiosity like kind of not being satisfied with like the first answer, if that makes sense. 
um, and, and the willingness to be patient until you can kind of figure out um, what's, you know, until you just have more confidence that you've figured out what's going on. But it's, it's not easy. I, I definitely, I, I think, I do think there's some, um, you know, some innate thing. I mean, I used to see, I used to see it in poker actually where, um, yeah, I mean, no matter how, like at MIT, for example, like there's a lot of smart people, but like there was just some that were kind of naturally like the whole thing about poker of like really trying to like rationally figure out what's going on, like in this like game was, it just didn't suit. So it just didn't suit, suit some people as much. Like it just wasn't. Uh, and, and it's not, it's not like a raw horsepower, like intelligence thing, obviously, because I mean, these are all MIT kids, but um, it was, yeah, I think part of it was just like in an, just like some, some type of innate thing for sure. Some, some portion. It would be fair to call Evan's firm small, whether you measure by capital or employees, they started even smaller than they are today, but they've just been focused on making good decisions and then attracting new capital will hopefully take care of itself. We were lucky that we started with a seed investment of 20 million. So we, we, um, based on our fee structure and our expenses, we'd never had to go through a period where like we weren't, uh, you know, making any money. Like we were profitable from, from, from day one as a business. And we have just kept our expenses, uh, really low. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we have a, a separately managed account structure, uh, rather than a proper fund because we don't have to pay, you know, we don't have to pay auditors and things like that on, the, on an annual basis because everything is just uh, in separately managed accounts. So, um, you know, from that standpoint, the the business of it ha- hasn't been too stressful for us. Like it, it doesn't it doesn't take up a ton of mental space for me. Like trying to think about like you know I don't have I don't have to worry about like paying the next uh, bill or anything like that, which is you know a, a problem for a lot of smaller funds. Um, and I think that's definitely uh, my advice for most people out there. I mean, it's like unless you have a unless you have like a, a large seed investor, like just try to keep expenses as low as possible. Um, I mean, in, institutional uh, allocators will tell you like, oh, you have to like hire up immediately, like five marketing people and like a chief compliance person and blah, blah, blah. But I mean, I think it's in the beginning when you're, especially when you're building your track record, it's completely, um, it's completely fine to do things that don't necessarily scale longer term because, you know, if you, once you get to a hundred or 200 million of assets, you can always, uh, you can always flip that switch on uh, and then you'll have the track record, et cetera. It's better to just, it's much better to just make it through um, and kind of preserve uh, your mental capacity for actually the investing side of things rather than having to worry about, um, you know, where your next, uh, you know, how, you, how you're going to pay your own bills, right? Um, so I think from that standpoint, keeping your expenses down as much as possible makes sense. There's some, I mean, there's some things I do and don't enjoy. Like I, I'm the chief compliance officer for our firm. I mean, there's only two of us. Uh, you know, I, I don't necessarily uh, enjoy having to, you know, file a new state registration with, uh, you know, uh, some random state because we have more than five clients in that state or one client as the case may be. Like, obviously I'd rather focus on like buying stocks rather than like talking to a regulator. Um, but that being said, there's other aspects of the, of the kind of, the business side of things that, um, that I do enjoy, which is, you know, like for, for example, this, you know, like this is, um, you know, kind of, you know, getting our name out there, talking to, um, you know, smart people about investing and kind of putting out, uh, content, whether that's audio content and podcasts or whatnot, or, um, or just our writing, um, that I do enjoy if for no other reason, uh, well, for a couple of reasons, but, you know, get to talk to smart people, 
uh, have interesting conversations and just, it kind of helps me flesh out like my thinking, like, especially in like our quarter to letters or blog posts. Um, you know, I get, you know, I, I put a lot of time into those, uh, and you know, it helps me kind of clarify my thinking. Um, and as well as being like a good, um, you know, good PR thing for people to kind of understand where we're at. And, uh, you know, I, I definitely have, you know, income inbound, uh, interest from, from those things. Um, so, uh, you know, it's on, uh, from that standpoint, um, you know, there's, I, I, I do enjoy it. Uh, although, you know, I definitely prefer to have the vast majority of my time just be spent, uh, you know, you know, looking at the stocks. One reason I wanted to talk to Evan is because value investing has really gone out of style over the past five to 10 years. The oft-repeated Warren Buffett quotes are seemingly the only remainder signs that value investing was ever in vogue. So even though the information is widely known, it's actually become something of a contrarian strategy. And managers like Evan have had a much harder time attracting capital than people willing to go on CNBC and hype meme stocks or space tourism to Mars or Bitcoin, or whatever. It's kind of crazy. As someone who is not like a pure quantitative value person, I think my job is to try to, um, I mean, really my job is to try to outperform the market at all times, but like understanding that there's just going to be periods, there's also going to be periods of, 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 of underperformance and trying to, you know, to always do better, to, to, to trying to over long periods do better than, um, you know, the market as a whole and, and, and also do better than, uh, you know, the, the, any type of like value index as well. Um, I think we, w- one thing, uh, that we've done really well is we were, we were able to outperform over the last six years, even despite the fact that, you know, value type strategies have been, you know, underperforming a, a decent amount. Um, so that, that definitely, I think for me, that kind of slight, you know, that significant, that significantly increases the, statistical significance i think of our, our of our track record like i think for the most part tra- track record of six years even given that i think our track record of six years is like not that st- significant statistically um i think you probably need uh you know 10 to 15 years like through one of these like value growth cycles especially if you have that type of uh, uh, you know one of like a a, a, a a style that's like on either end of that continuum um you know you, you really need to be like through multiple market cycles to like see how good you are but I, yeah, I don't think, I don't think, I don't think statistical value investing is dead by any means. I mean, if anything, the fact that a ton of those investors have seen, you know, their, their assets decline and, um, or, or like gone on to other things, uh, means that it's probably still pretty fertile, fertile ground, uh, these days. Poker is a game of math, but it's also a game of judgment using all the information you have, even qualitative information to make the best decision. The market is sort of similar. There's an element that's math, and then you also have to use all of the crumbs of information to make the best decision. Evan says that having good judgment is where his edge comes from. So I think our uh, or my kind of focus on these cogn- cognitive biases and really trying to think about like in you know in each situation like what my uh, like what am I seeing that the market is missing like kind of doing that and being very disciplined about, you know, trying to find like 10 to 15 situations across the entire market where I really feel confident that like we have a, an edge, not just, just in that, in that particular position, not necessarily informational edge, but just kind of like a, a, an edge in judgment. And then just on each position, just being, 
I mean, I think I think the 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 poker experience helps me also just be kind of very uh, rational about where things stand. I mean, like I think one 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 of the things you learn as a poker player is that the hand is never over until it's over, right? Like you always have a chance to you can always you always have to re um, reevaluate the the situation that you're in based on the information at hand. Like just because you started with aces doesn't mean that. Um, you know, by the river, you're still, you still should be like betting and raising, you know, maybe you should have folded a long time ago. And so I think that sort of forced self-awareness is is helpful. Um, But in in the end, I think just, uh, just judgment, if, if anything, and I guess uh, I would, you know, I I tell all of our investors, like our, our, our results so far have probably been at least 50% luck. I'm just hoping that like 50% of our edge is preserved over the long, the long term. And I'll be and I'll be happy. Risk of Ruin is written and produced by me. Special thanks to Evan Tyndall for being generous with his time for this episode. I'll put links in the show notes so you can follow Evan on Twitter and also check out the articles he writes for Byrene. I also want to mention that I started a newsletter as an additional way to stay in touch with listeners. I'll put links to that in the show notes. And also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us, riskofruinpod at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at Half Kelly.